Welcome to Sober Discussions. This is Steve and Mike, and sometimes you just need to take out the trash. Hello and welcome to Sober Discussions. Today we're covering the Electoral College, some predictions about the upcoming president, and some shady practices in our government system. So let's spin this up. So uh, we're looking at a government source from usembassy.gov. Um, as prescribed in the U.S. Constitution, American presidents are elected not directly by the people, but by the people's electors. The Electoral College was created by the framers of the U.S. Constitution as an alternative to electing the president by popular vote or by Congress. Each state elects the number of representatives to the Electoral College that is equal to its number of senators, two from each state, plus the number of delegates in the House of Representatives. We will uh, take a closer look at what the breakdown looks like. The District of Columbia, which has no voting representation in Congress, has three Electoral College votes. There are currently 538 electors in the Electoral College. Uh, that is important. We'll talk a little bit about faithless voters a little later. Uh, 270 votes are needed to win uh, the presidential election. Uh, several weeks after the general election, electors from each state meet in their state capitals and cast their official vote for president and vice president, who on January 6th, with the entire Congress present, tallies the votes and announces the winner. The winner of the Electoral College vote is usually the candidate who has won the popular vote. However, it is possible to win the presidency without winning the popular vote. There has been a total of five candidates who have won the popular vote, but lost in the Electoral College with the most recent cases occurring in 2016 and 2000 elections. Two other presidents, Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876 and Benjamin Harrison in 1888, became president without winning the popular vote. In the 1824 election between John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, Jackson won the popular vote, but neither won a majority of the Electoral College votes. Adams secured the presidency only after the election was decided by vote of the House of Representatives, a procedure provided for the Constitution when no candidate wins the majority of the Electoral College. So, uh, going a little bit deeper into it, uh, the Electoral College is obviously not a place. It's the process that takes place. Uh, this video explains the process, what is designed to achieve. Uh, if you do want to have a video of this information, uh, this one helps better describe it. We will include it in our blog, of course. It just didn't have a really good way to be able to, to... Yeah, there's there's no speaker in the video that's just kind of right. words for you to read, so we thought we would just include the link and not actually uh, play it for you. Thanks, Mike, for saying that. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so I did find a great breakdown of the Electoral College. Uh, that expands a little more uh, what we just read. Uh, Mike, can you play that clip for us? Last night, my final thought was on the Electoral College and how polls show Trump could win again there while again losing the popular vote. Now, in response, Donna Young emailed us here at the Q&A this question. How are people picked to be a state elector? Donna, thanks for that question. This show is all about getting you answers that you want. Take a look. Here's how it works. According to the Constitution, each state gets an elector for each senator, which is always two. Then you get one elector for each of your U.S. representatives. Once you do the math, that's 538 people in the Electoral College. Mike, can you it takes pause 270. that real quick? 
So one thing that I thought was important, um, so we, we talked about having uh, two electoral um, votes, yep. right? And then it's based on population mm-hmm. in addition to that. So one thing I wanted to include that's just a little bit out of um, what you would say normal. Uh, so Utah has six electoral votes, right? Whereas California has 55, Texas has 38, Florida has 29, Pennsylvania has 20. So it is based on population. Obviously, those states uh, do have a lot more impact on uh, the 270 leading up to the voting for the uh, the president. Anyways, I just thought that was important. Yeah, if California all voted, if, if all 55 votes went for one individual, that's one-fifth of what the nation would need. Yeah. And it is. Yeah, we it's don't... crazy. We don't really have... Uh, we do have a couple of states that do what's called a split uh, electoral college vote. It goes into, like, districts and things, and based on that district, that's where that electoral vote goes to. A lot of states don't. It's kind of like all or nothing. So, anyways, kind of interesting. Yeah. ...to elect the president. Here's how they get picked. A couple of months before Election Day, each political party in every state in Washington, D.C., gets together and picks who they want to serve as an elector. There really aren't many rules about how it's done, but each political party usually uses it as a way to honor people who are really active supporters. Active U.S. senators or representatives cannot be picked. In most states, it's really ceremonial. Electors must vote for the candidate their party supports. There have been exceptions, though, in the past. After the November election, state electors meet up in their state capitals and sign something that's called a certification of vote. Those votes are then delivered to the office of the President of the United States Senate. And then on the 6th of January, U.S. Congress convenes and announces the certificates of vote and declares the official winner. And there you have it. Now, if an elector votes for somebody other than who they pledged to vote for, they're called faithless electors. And they, uh, they've never changed the outcome of a presidential election. We want to point that out. Most electors remain faithful because of their loyalty to the party, and they also risk political retaliation and possible criminal penalties in some states if they vote against their pledge. So here's a question for you, Steve. Yeah. This is something I don't know, and I don't know whether you know. When an elector is put in and declared as an elector, Mm -hmm. is that when they must choose their party that they're going to vote for, or do you know when that happens? I think they said previously... Uh, in the video, when you are going to become an elector, uh, you have to uh, have voted for that party. And so based on either being Democrat or Republican, then you uh, make that decision um, once the votes are cast or whatever for your state. And then it's up to those representatives or electors to um, move forward with uh, what the actual count is to the march to the 270 win. Meaning that it's supposed to represent what the population, population. is doing. Typically, right, exactly. And and we'll talk a little bit more about the faithless voters, too, uh, here very shortly. Uh, but no, that, I, I'm glad you brought that up, Mike. Yep. We touched for a second about faithless electors. I'm not going to go too in-depth, uh, but I do have these sources available on our blog. I did want to take a look at this graph, though, about the specifics of these quote-unquote deviant voters or faithless electors. Mike, can you briefly just read from that graph 
Uh, the breakdown. Yeah, we've got a pie chart. Um, so here it shows categories of deviant votes. It shows that uh, death of a nominee takes up 68.48% of the pie chart. Uh, we've got the runner-up to that. Those who voted for another candidate are 27.17%. And then we've got three others that are all tied at 1.09%. They are abstention, abnormal vote, accident, or voted for nominee's opponent. So I thought that was really important. Uh, the bulk chunk of faithless electors was mainly because someone died. <laughs> well, you, crazy. You, you can't really, you know, change that. I mean, if someone's dead, obviously you're not going to, like, turn them into Frankenstein and resurrect them. <laughs> but uh, uh, the other good part was the bulk that I was actually under uh, misinformation or that I had a... Anyways, I just didn't have a good idea or good information backing it. Well, it was only like 26% that actually voted um, for a different candidate totally through the entire lifetime. Like if we go up to this pie chart, yeah, it's like what, 20, 27% of like individuals through the entire lifetime of our country for president. Anyways, I thought that was interesting, but... 27% of voters who are faithless voters. Right. That's mm -hmm. not of all votes. Correct. Yeah. No, definitely. That was really important to me. I just had a different idea of what that looked like, so I thought that chart was really beneficial, for sure. We're looking at 2016, Trump versus Clinton. There was 10 deviant votes uh, that just voted for another candidate. The next, uh, I guess you would say, pertinent one is 1872. So yeah, it's been a long time, right? Greeley, 63. And that was because of death of O'Nominee, right? Which makes up that chart. Yeah, oh, that was interesting. Now that we have a pretty good understanding about the Electoral College and have the understanding that deviant voters or faithless voters have not really affected the outcome of the president to this point, hopefully never, uh, I'll put that out there, but let's take a look at a projection of the outcome uh, by a couple of sources. Uh, so this is from electoralvotemap.com. It's an interactive map that I thought was a pretty user-friendly website. Uh, if we can look at that real quick, Mike. Yeah, and I'll preface this by saying mm -hmm. this is November 4th, mm -hmm. 9.30 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, going there, we're looking at an electoral vote map, and we currently see from... So we can currently see uh, Donald Trump has 217 electoral votes, mm -hmm. Joe Biden has 264, and there are 57 that are toss-up. Of course, we know, as we just learned earlier, 270 gives you popular vote, or gives you the, the win. Right, gives you the win, and then it goes to uh, individuals to cast their ballot, you know, to, you know, Washington, D.C. Yeah. At a later date. But yeah, no, so, like, right now, we're at six for Joe Biden. There may be recounts. Um, that's happened in the past where mm -hmm. they demand recounts. Um, it could have a concern right now is mail-in ballots. I have my own opinion on it. I'm not going to bore you to death with it, but basically there's uh, individuals that believe that mail-in ballots are fraudulent or have a potential to be fraudulent, and they think that um, there's some bogus, shady stuff going on right now. Uh, obviously, we are in a pandemic. 
there obviously will be more than likely more individuals doing the mail-in ballot just simply because they want to be, uh, you know, cognizant to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They they just want to, you know, be more careful uh, with the COVID being around. Obviously, being around a line of people uh, would have a potential of causing that issue. Uh, for contracting COVID-19. So I think a lot of people uh, have gone into the mail-in ballot. Um, One of the concerns, too, is that uh, Joe Biden asked a lot of his uh, supporters to do mail-in ballots, whereas Donald Trump uh, asked his voters to go to the voting uh, booths to do that. So there is a difference in there. How much of a difference, I couldn't tell you. Obviously, I'm not a person that's counting votes right now. I couldn't tell you uh, specifics. Um, I I can tell you that uh, there is some information going around. Like, for instance, I I watched a video about this uh, lady talking about how um, individuals were issuing uh, Sharpies for the ballot, which made it basically a throw-out ballot. Uh, The idea is, is that there's individuals that are trying to rig votes because... It's just not a legally acceptable form of marking your vote. Why they don't do electronic, I couldn't tell you. Because, like, if I have a pen and paper, it would be just as easy for me to just simply mark it, throw it in a mailbox, or take it to a clerk office or a drop-off box than getting handed a Sharpie. I don't know. Uh, I, I feel inclined to believe this individual when they said that um, there was some, some voter fraud happening with Sharpies. How much of that throughout the United States, I couldn't tell you. Uh, I will say that if individuals uh, are in fact doing that, then they should be held uh, responsible for the full extent of the law because they know what they're doing and they're just being dirtbags. Anyways. Yeah. Um, so, so right now, uh, that is electoralmap.com. We did find another source, Mike, if you can... Uh, pick that up. It is uh, basically the Fox News uh, version of it. It is a little different. Uh, I'm not sure if that's just because it hasn't been updated or if there's some more information in the works that I'm not aware of. But right now it's saying Biden's 253, Trump is 214. Anyways, thought that was interesting information uh, for that. Uh, it, it does have some conflicting information, which I thought was interesting. Let's uh, let's go to the next section. We do have a few things we need to cover. So, so as we continue our next section, let's talk about some uh, shady practices. So let's start from a source I found pretty interesting uh, about term limits. Uh, Mike, can you read that for us? Yep, this comes from heritage.org. Uh, it came out in 1994. Uh, feel free to follow the link that we'll provide. You can read more about it. We're, we're just reading a portion of it. Uh, I think it's like a 30-minute read, but it's up top. 18 pages. Okay. This comes from that site, and it says, It is difficult to overstate the extent to which term limits would change Congress. They're supported by large majorities of most American demographic groups. They are opposed primarily by incumbent politicians and the special interest groups which depend on them. Term limits would ameliorate many, right. many of America's most serious political problems by counterbalancing incumbent advantages, ensuring, ensuring congressional turnover, securing independent congressional judgment, and reducing election-related incentives for wasteful government spending. 
perhaps most important, Congress would require a sense of its own fragility Mm -hmm. and temporariness, possibly even coming to learn that it would acquire more legitimacy as an institution by doing better work on fewer tasks. Key takeaways listed on their site. Uh, There are three of them. First one says, legislative resistance to term limits is in sharp contrast with private citizens' strong support for them. Second one says, the only serious opponents of term limits are incumbent politicians and special interests, particularly labor unions, that support them. Third, congressional term limits are a necessary corrective to inequalities which inevitably hinder challenges and aid incumbents. Yeah, Uh, thank you, Mike. Any thoughts on that? So, yeah, this first point uh, where it states legislative resistance to term limits is in sharp contrast with private citizens' strong support for them. Basically, it just sounds to me like somebody's got a little bit of power and they want to keep it. and uh, Like rigging the system, right? Yeah. I agree with that uh, for sure. When it talks about a sharp contrast, I think that specifically with individuals like you and me versus individuals that are already there. So let's say you've got power. Of course you're not going to want to give it up. You're going to want to stay there, uh, especially if you're getting some perks for being there. With great power comes great responsibility, but I think a lot of the people in power don't use that responsibility wisely. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Definitely. I'm um, sure many probably do use it wisely, but a lot of people, I think, power gets to their heads. No. Uh, yeah, for sure. Power corrupts, right? Yep. That's how, how well the saying goes. But uh, the second one is the only serious opponents to term limits are the encumberment of politicians. Weird. How that keeps coming up. And special interests, particularly labor unions that support them. Um, we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, lobbyists, things like that. Uh, there are big benefits for you remaining in office and creating uh, not only a NASDAQ, but also uh, getting ad campaigns and things like that from individuals in return. Like if they give you, you know, millions of dollars for your ad campaign, they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart, probably, probably having some expectations for you to follow through, probably behind closed doors even. If those are the only serious opponents, as stated in that, right, that there, uh, then it sounds like the only people who really care are the people who are trying to rig the system. Right. I know. I completely agree with that, Mike. That's an excellent observation. Uh, The third one is congressional term limits are a necessary corrective to inequalities which inevitably hinder challengers and aid encumberments. Uh, That, to me, is just saying the the more embedded you are in something, uh, the harder it is to... Uh, remove that or even reverse it if they're making laws, if they're making deals with even foreign policies, uh, things like that, foreign companies. There's just so many things that would benefit from having a term limit, time's up, like you were saying, getting you know new people in, new blood, uh, to have a progression in actual you know polit- or government. I mean. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said about having fresh blood in all the time. Right. I, I think that makes a positive difference for our country. It's not that way right now. Right. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was an interesting article. So before we go into this next segment, uh, let's watch a two-minute overview about small businesses and why large corporations are hurting small businesses. 
We hear a lot about large companies in the news, but small business is the engine of the U.S. economy. America is home to more than 28 million small businesses that employ 57 million workers. And when you add owners and employees together, that's a community of roughly 85 million hardworking Americans dependent on the success of small business, most of the private sector workforce. Small business owners are America's most important job creators. U.S. small businesses accounted for almost two-thirds of the net new jobs created between 1993 and 2013, a grand total of 11.8 million new career opportunities. In 2012, small businesses created more than 2.1 million net new jobs. Small businesses are the country's main job creators because they're often growing and looking for new markets to expand. To do so, they need additional employees along the way. Large businesses, on the other hand, generally stay the same size, hiring new employees to replace departing ones. Unfortunately, high taxes and recent government regulations in healthcare, finance, and labor disproportionately hurt small businesses and prevent them from growing and adding new jobs to the economy. Big business with big profits can afford to comply with red tape in a way that small businesses just starting out cannot. As a result, small businesses still haven't recovered completely from the Great Recession, and it shows by the chronically weak labor market. To bring small businesses back and strengthen the job market, job-killing taxes and regulations must be rolled back. Job creators should be encouraged to hire more employees, not forced to reduce career opportunities. With 85 million people depending on the success of small business, it's easy to see why small business is too big to fail. Mike, thoughts on that? Yeah, a, it states in there two-thirds of the jobs that were created in that time period were from small businesses, and I think that there's something to be said about how they emphasize how we depend on small business in this country. We need it. And if big corporations are, or big government or big corporations are, are stomping on small business, that's not necessarily doing anything but hurting us as a country. It, it might be helping a, a particular business be more wealthy, but it's it's not going to help the country as a whole. It's, it's kind of my takeaway, I guess. Definitely. Uh, they talked a little bit about uh, taxes and regulations. Um, I think that it's very disproportionate on what's happening with small businesses versus large corporations or even investments investment properties with these politicians, large corporations, things like that. I don't think they're paying appropriate taxes. An idea is that if you're making billions of dollars, uh, a idea from some people is, well, if you're making billions of dollars, you can uh, have you know, a 90% tax rate or something like that. I'm not saying that. I am saying that we should have some sort of an equalized tax bracket very much like uh, U.S. citizens are being held accountable for. I think um, there are certainly uh, corporations and politicians that are not paying appropriate taxes and they've utilized uh, their time in a political standpoint to have loopholes and things like that that just give them uh, either tax write-offs or just make it to where they don't have to pay the appropriate taxes where if you're an average middle class individual of course you don't have that capability so you know, not fair at all not fair not fair at all so I think we definitely need to 
uh, adjust or reform uh, taxes. I think that's kind of what they were talking about. But yeah, um, a couple of things for me. Uh, these statistics are a little old. Uh, it did come out in 2017. I do believe a lot of their facts are correct. It does mention the recession. Uh, we kind of touched on it in the housing market. We definitely know with COVID-19, a lot of businesses are not going to reopen, uh, which to me is really sad. Some of the opinions I feel are pressured against the middle class, but I think directing regulation towards large corporation and lobbyists instead of small businesses is critical to keep these small businesses survival for sure. Uh, let's move on to our next segment. Uh, so let's talk about separation from corporations and politics. It does have some really good information. I'm not going to bore you to death, but here are some good takeaways uh, from this article that I found. Like, if you could read that for us. This is from businessinsider.com. Over the past four decades, large corporations have learned to play the Washington game. Companies now devote massive resources to politics, and their large-scale involvement increasingly redirects and constricts the capabilities, the capacities of the political system. The consequence is a democracy that is increasingly unable to tackle large-scale problems in a political economy that too often rewards lobbying and over-innovation. When corporations first became politically engaged in the 1970s, their approach to lobbying was largely reactive. They were trying to stop the continued advancement of the regulatory state. They were fighting a proposed consumer protection agency trying to stop labor law reform, and responding to a general sense that the values of free enterprise had been forgotten and government regulation was going to destroy the economy. They also lobbied as a community. Lobbyists drive this process. They teach companies to see the value in political activity. They also benefit from an information, from an information asymmetry that allows them to highlight information, issues, and advocacy strategies that can collectively make the strongest case for continued and expanded political engagement. Because corporate managers depend on lobbyists for both their political information and strategic advice, lobbyists are well positioned to push companies toward increased lobbying over time. Uh, one of the big takeaways for me from this is uh, where it suggests that that our political economy is rewarding lobbying over innovation. I, I think that if we're going to just kind of go with whatever the lobbyists want to do, we're going to hurt our country more than being innovative and trying to work on, I don't know, work on things that are going to be beneficial for us. But what about all my money and my large corporation? Too bad. What? I mean, I've spent a lot of money on this. I've given a lot of politicians this for, for me to benefit as, you know, corporation. <laughs> They're grateful for your money. <laughs> they are definitely grateful. <laughs> Ad campaign, I mean, the list can go on and on. I'm sure, you know, they get some really good perks, uh, maybe some investments, things like that, uh, that might have a really nice nest egg at the very end when they're done. You know, um, I think that's why we need to have uh, term limits. I think the less time these people are able to be involved in politics, the better, in my opinion. Because they're just trying to rig the system, like we've mentioned before. <laughs> rig the system, right. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? I mean, if you had the capability to, and it's going to benefit you, and you don't care about anything else, then, I mean, makes sense to me. Anyways, um, let's continue on. So in conjunction with this, let's talk about stocks. 
and what some of our representatives did uh, during the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, this article did come out uh, April 29th of 2020, so it goes from February 2nd to April 8th of this year. The nonpartisan watchdog group found 12 senators made a combined of 127 purchases or sales, while 37 House of Representatives made at least 1,358 transactions. So as lawmakers received closed-door briefings on the pandemic from the top health and national security officials, some bought stocks in remote working technologies, telemedicine companies, pharmaceutical makers currently developing potential vaccines, car manufacturers that have shifted to make ventilators for coronavirus patients, and alcohol producers that started making hand sanitizer during the coronavirus outbreak. In most cases, the lawmakers have not been accused of wrongdoing, but CLC says the frequency of such stock trades underscores the need for more transparency and ethics protection, particularly in a time of crisis. Uh, members of Congress are not held to the same ethics and disclosure requirements as members of the executive branch, but they must obey the 2012 Stock Act, which prohibits trading on non-public information that they accessed in the course of their official duties for personal profit. Two GLP Senators, Richard Burr of North Carolina and Kelly Loeffer of Georgia, have already faced accusations of improper trading, but maintain they did nothing wrong. Burr, who leads the Intelligence Committee and is a member of the Health Committee, weird how that's a coincidence, had insisted that he relied only on public information when selling off between 628000 and $1.72 million in holdings in mid-February, a week before the stock market plunged and after attending confidential briefings on the pandemic. That's kind of a coincidence. Loeffler says her financial advisors make all the decisions for her and her husband's stock portfolio. Her husband is CEO of the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange. Mike, thoughts on that? Although they are denying the fact, well, I won't call it fact. Although they're denying the accusation that they made these transactions based on information that they received that wasn't accessible to the public. Right. Uh, I think they're just trying to cover it up and deny that that's the case. I think it really is the case. I mean, $628,000 up to like $1.72 million, that that's a big amount of money to just like right before something happens to either pull out or to invest somewhere. Right. Uh, and then to just kind of have... It, it, it's, it's too fishy for it to not... Yeah, super coincidental, to yeah. say the least. You have to have some ESP to be able to make those, <laughs> you know, uh, assessments, you know, in, in the stock market just before it plunged. Right. To, um, yeah, and part of that $6.2 trillion in that CARE Act did bail out the stock market, did bail out the federal government, did bail out a lot of these places. So kind of double-dipping the chip, in my opinion, but what do I know? that these people are just kind of covering up and are guilty of what they were accused for, they, you know, breaking the law. And it's unfortunate uh, the first paragraph talks about a lot of people seemingly did this same thing and just kind of were never accused and got away with it. And, right. that's, and it talked about all these things. Like, it talked about 
uh, remote work technology companies. So that's going to be like your Zoom that everybody's mm-hmm. now using. People investing in Zoom right before things go crazy with the pandemic. Investing in hand sanitizer companies. All these things like there's no way that's a coincidence. That's people using insider information illegally to invest. But hey, they do have some really cool uh, loopholes and things that they've created throughout the course of time to protect (laughs) them from that, right? I mean, it's said that that they're not even held accountable as much as an individual. And we'll cover that a little bit later uh, in in this next segment too, but I did think that was an interesting takeaway. Um, I don't think there is equal ethical treatment uh, if you are not in the quote-unquote inside club or the government, with insider trading specifically. Uh, we're going to press the rewind button uh, in 2004 for an example. Uh, let's talk about Martha Stewart for a second. Uh, Mike, can you read that for us? This is from Match.com, and this kind of goes more into the law here. It says, insider trading is where an individual buys or sells stocks they have in a company using information that is not available to the public. Insider trading is illegal and a serious offense resulting in fines or jail time. So that kind of just reconfirms what we were talking about above. Right. And in here the article uh, says, Toward the end of 2001, things began to look bad for a biopharmaceutical company called Imclone, which manufactures drugs in the United States, mostly for cancer patients. At the time, Imclone was testing an experimental drug called Herbitux which was to be used in infusions for patients with certain types of cancer. The drug was submitted to the Food and Drug Administration for approval, which it failed to get. When this happens to a medical company, often the company's stocks take a dive because the market's expectations for the drug to make money have been dashed. One of the founders of the company, Dr. Samuel Waxall, was arrested for advising friends and family members to sell the stock before the FDA made the announcement and the stock dropped in price. During the investigations of Imclone, it was discovered that Martha Stewart had sold 4,000 shares of the Einstone clock she owned the day before the FDA decision was announced, avoiding a loss of around $45,000 in the process. The suspicious timing and the fact that she received the information about the stock through her stockbroker, Peter Bakanovic, led to an investigation of Stewart's dealings with Imclone. Here we have Martha Stewart doing the same thing as these other people right. that we read about above, mm-hmm. and she gets in trouble for it because she's not part of the system. Right, not, exactly. Not in the loophole, not part of the government. Right, definitely. And uh, that's not okay. It's not, you know, it, it should be the same. The, the people should be accountable whether they're in a government position or not. If, if the President of the United States commits a crime, he is accountable for his crime just as this, as much as I am. Yeah, uh, I agree, and I think uh, that, that's why we do need term limits. I think we do need to reform uh, some bills uh, that uh, give loopholes for individuals to not be held accountable for their actions. I'm a big proponent for being held accountable uh, for your actions, especially in our government. Um, for sure, because they're the ones that are creating these for the betterment of America, and I just don't think that it's making it better. Yeah, I completely agree. So, uh, any other kind of thoughts before we kind of wrap things up? Yeah, no, uh, I think that was a great episode uh, for for everyone. I know that some people um, 
uh, really fueled by it for sure. Uh, I definitely had some emotional outbursts uh, from it, but uh, I think it needed to be said. Uh, I actually did learn a little bit myself, uh, specifically with uh, deviant voters or uh, faithless voters for the Electoral College. I, I did really enjoy that. Um, but uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. We hope you have a great night. Thank you for supporting our podcast. If you would like to check out our sources from today's episode, please visit our blog at soberdiscussions.blogspot.com. And if you would like to join the discussion, email us at soberdiscussions at gmail.com.